Father, we thank you for your graciousness in our lives. We look around and look within, and we know what we could have been. We know mistakes that we perhaps have made. We know decisions that weren't always the best. Every one of us have those. But we know your grace and how grateful we are for that. Thank you that you are the ruling, reigning God of the universe. And this morning, as we think about the message going globally, I pray that you would give us wisdom and understanding. And Lord, I don't know why the people who are here have been assembled this morning. I don't know what they've come from. I don't know what they're going to. I don't know their dreads, their joys, their problems, sorrows, whatever, but you know. And I pray somehow that you would speak to each one of us down deep in the inner person with a small voice that we can't mistake that comes clearly from you and your spirit. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, for you are our strength and redeemer. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I stepped off the train about two o'clock in the morning decades ago and made my way back to the college campus where I was a junior in the middle of the night in Columbia, South Carolina. And it was kind of a foreboding thing because I really didn't go downtown at night, even though that was a relatively safe city. To my dismay, I saw behind me the lights of a policeman. And I knew I was the only one on the road, so I couldn't fake that maybe he was going to someone else. So I pulled over on the side of the road. He got out, came up to the car, said, uh, what are you doing? And I said, I'm going back to the college campus. And he said, oh, well, come back to my squad car. I want to talk to you a few minutes. Well, that was a long trip back there to that squad car. And I sat in the front seat And he said, by the way, nothing's wrong. You didn't do anything wrong. Now, that was a relief, but I wanted to go to bed. I had been up in Virginia interviewing for a summer job in a big church up there, and train was the best way to go, and I was tired from a busy weekend. He started talking to me, what are you going to do with your life? And I said, well, I'm planning to be a pastor. And he said, oh, really? Yes. He said, well, you know, there are a lot of problems in this world, a lot of problems in our city. We're both trying to address those. We're doing the same thing. And I didn't want to speak because I didn't know what he might do if I sort of debated him. Then he said this, but I have more authority than you do. I had a hard time keeping my mouth shut, and I felt I should in that situation. I have more authority than you do. His authority, of course, was delegated, and it was superficial, and it was, it was dealing with controlling society and keeping everybody in their place. My authority was also delegated, but it was at a much deeper level. And I wanted to explain that to him, but felt the better part of valor was to wait and see if I could witness another time. And after about an hour of telling me how good a person he was for doing the same thing I was going in the ministry, he said, why don't you go on back to the dorm? He was just lonely. I thought there might have been a better way. He could have stopped for donuts. But uh, anyway, interesting conversation. 
authority. The old, old tension of the sword and the spirit. Who is best to solve the world's problems? Which is best, the political institutions and those uh, law enforcements and others, as much respect as I have for them, and it is very deep and very great. Do they have the kind of authority that is ultimately going to do what the world needs? You have already sung this morning what the answer is. It is inside, not outside. It works with people who are incarcerated and people who are not, and I've witnessed both, love preaching in jails. It works with those who are sick or healthy or whatever. The power of God is an amazing thing. This morning, we're going to think about the first part of the book of Acts. The first part of the book of Acts. It is the introduction to the entire book. 30 years of explosive sort of global evangelism and missions. We only know about the mission to the Northwest through Paul and Silas and Barnabas initially and on to Rome and Paul went to Spain, according to Eusebius. We don't learn about Mark going to Africa and Thomas going to India and the gospel being in China, though it was, and history records that, explosive growth. So I want us to go back to Jesus' words as he was aware of his own timing to ascend to heaven and the instructions he gave his apostles and disciples and followers about the world and what they must know to reach it. Let's turn and read the book of Acts. I'm going to read the first 11 verses, but speak from 3 to 8. In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed in his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. While they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. These words were preface to the dynamic spread of the gospel that started in verse 12, but especially in chapter 2 of Acts, where the world was shaken by these early believers. They're important words because they give us then the overview and the direction. I want to make two very simple points with a few points to explain them, points that you will likely know 
Many of you will have studied Acts or been Christians a long time, and, they, and you will say, oh, really, that? I knew that 30, 40, 50 years ago. Some of you will say, wow, I never thought about that before. I'm hoping it will encourage us to continue. First of all, the first point, global perspective. Having a perspective like the book of Acts describes, and though it ends in 62 AD, it goes on and on and on through two millennia now. A global perspective comes from knowing who Jesus is. From knowing who Jesus is. I'm basing that on 3 through 5 of Acts chapter 1. And what we find is even though they had followed him some for two and a half, maybe three years, they had witnessed his death, his agony, his intense suffering. A few were there. Then they saw the resurrection. They still seemed not to know quite who he was and who he is. And it's interesting to me that Luke, the writer, in writing a second book to Theophilus about what Jesus did and now began to do, starts with who Jesus is, things they have to know. First of all, he is the risen Lord. He's the risen Lord. It says he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during the 40 days. Many proofs. I like the way I think it's the old King James Version that actually translates this with many inalienable or uh, defeatable truths. They are things that you cannot refute. This is a very interesting word in the Greek text, an unusual word, which is derived out of logic and out of uh, that kind of social and rhetorical intercourse, which says, in effect, here's a point you can't deny. It's a proof. So Jesus used that word of his resurrection. After he suffered, he appeared to them during 40 days. For what reason? He didn't have to appear to them. He could have gone on to the Father, but they needed him to appear to them. Why? Because they needed to know he was the risen Lord. You say, well, didn't they see him at the uh, open tomb? Didn't they see him shortly after that? We studied that two weeks ago with Easter. Yes, they did. But Acts says that during the 40 days he appeared. He came and went, sometimes here, sometimes not here. Where did he go? How did he come? What's happening? Many, many questions after the resurrection as there were before the resurrection. But here's the point. Jesus is saying to them, be absolutely, utterly convinced that I'm the risen Lord. Not only in what you think, but in the way you live. The risen Lord. If you look at the book of Acts, almost every message that you find sort of reaches a conclusion by saying, and Jesus is Lord, and he died for our sins. We usually say, he died for our sins, and oh, well, yeah, he rose from the grave. 
anybody could say they died for your sins. And you would experience that. And as, if you do, you would say it's a, it's a truth, and it is. But the resurrection was a cutting edge. He rose from the dead. He is alive. He is the Lord. Why don't our messages include that as they should? Many times they don't. I'm not indicting you. We focus on the death, redemption, the wonderful things he does for giving our sins and our guilt. He's the Lord. But they had to know that because they needed to take that message throughout the world as obedient servants to the Lord. There's a second truth about Jesus. He is the ruling king. He says here that during the 40 days, he was speaking about the kingdom. Now, that was Jesus' message in the Gospels, the kingdom of God. Be a part of the kingdom of God. Through faith, uh, repentance and faith, you can be a part of the kingdom of God, faith in Christ. As he often said, I am the way, or some equivalent that let them know he opened the door. But now they had to know about the kingdom of God. We're so attuned to the kingdom of this earth and even how it might be changed if we're better people and we can be through Christ, we forget about the kingdom of God. You say, oh, well, that's after we die when we go to heaven. No, no, no. The kingdom of God is also present on earth spiritually. Jesus is the king of the kingdom of God. He is the ruling king. They preached the kingdom of God. They understood the kingdom of God. The very last verse in the book of Acts, after all of the journeys and travels and Paul's in prison waiting to witness to Caesar, Nero, which he was going to do, the very last word says, and they talked about the kingdom of God. Now, in Acts, that also translates to the gospel because they're used sometimes almost synonymously. You enter the kingdom of God by repenting of your sins, by faith in Christ, by committing yourself to the lordship of Jesus, which occurs at conversion. And you enter that sphere where Jesus is Lord, and where his kingdom is. But he showed it while he was here on earth. There are really only three basic problems in our entire world. Now, there are many manifestations. There are really only three real deep, basic problems. One is sin. Another is sickness, which is a result of sin, ultimately, not in you necessarily, but in history. And death. Almost everything can boil down to sin, the way we live our lives and perhaps in social or other relationships, sickness and death. Jesus handled all of those. He healed the lame. He touched the sick. He uh, told people their sins were forgiven. He raised the dead. He demonstrated that the kingdom of God is a place where there is no sin, there is no sickness, there is no death. And all of these miracles and teachings are simply the kingdom of God touching down to us to say, don't you want to be a part of this wonderful time and place where God is king and everything is right? 
I'm kind of tired listening to news and looking around at our world. Not tired so I quit. Tired. Don't you get tired of hearing about mass shootings and mistaken uh, shootings by people who may be innocent and protesting and issues that people have and the volatility of our world. I don't think I've ever seen it quite as divided as it is, though I taught through part of the Vietnam War and all kind of revolutions through and then 47 years. You get tired. What is the answer? The kingdom of God. The church has got to rise to the occasion and understand and live the kingdom of God. Wish we could talk about that in more detail because I'm very concerned about it. We'll come back in a sense to it in a moment. And I see I'm going to have to hurry up. Third, he is the requirement for the Holy Spirit. As it says, wait for the promise the Father gave and John the Baptist predicted that Jesus would baptize us in the Holy Spirit, which happened at Pentecost. That was when Pentecost was when the Holy Spirit came and indwelled believers consistently for the first time. The church was born because one of the definitions of church is the house of God, the place of the Spirit. That's when the church was actually begun. And it simply was the Holy Spirit making his appearance and living within us from then on. You see the Spirit throughout Acts, but it's not a mystical, strange, crazy kind of experience. It's that as you become a believer in Christ, the Holy Spirit now comes within and you are changed because you have the reality of God within through the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. People wanted the power of the Holy Spirit. They tried to buy it from Paul. And Paul said, no, you don't understand. You get it through Jesus. It's through his death and and resurrection and your confession that your life is changed and the Holy Spirit becomes resident. And all you ever need about the Holy Spirit is there the moment you're converted. So Jesus wanted them to know who he is, the the risen Lord, the, the ruling king the requirement for the Holy Spirit. And they took that throughout the world, confident that in doing so, their world would be changed. And it was. There's a second point I want to make, and it is about as simple as that one. Global perspectives come from knowing who you are from knowing who you are, not just knowing who Jesus is, knowing who you are. And we find this in verses 6 through 8 when it says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They got the kingdom part. Now they wanted to know when is it going to happen? That's a good question. All through history, since the time of, uh, of Jesus on earth, people have wanted to know the times and the times, the, as it is in Greek, the chronos and kairos. What are the times and what are the events? 
so we try to equate it to the newspapers and we try to equate it to world events. And I'm not suggesting that we should not read and see our world in light of Jesus coming again. We absolutely should. But as he said here and he said in Matthew 24, that's not for you to know. Don't get preoccupied with the kingdoms coming now or tomorrow or next week. That's in God's hands. There was a good theological reason they wanted the kingdom to come. They wanted Israel to be like in David's day. When great King David took us to the highest point as a nation that they had ever been. Make it like David, only better. But there's a sort of subtlety to this. They were thinking inwardly, inwardly. Tell us when the kingdom is coming to Israel, to our land, to our place, to our people. We want to know when we get something out of it. And very frequently, our whole approach to the gospel is I've got mine (laughs) and I'm going to enjoy what I got. And it'd be nice if other people had it, but it's mine and I'm going to take advantage of me. And Lord, this time, are you going to do something with me and within my friends, my nations? Jesus, of course, said that's the wrong question to ask, not for you to know. One of the extremes of that, I think, is in those who preach a very strong prosperity gospel. I'm not opposed or criticizing this man I'm going to give an illustration from. He answers to God and much of his message is right. And I'm not going to tell you who he is, so you can guess all afternoon. But I heard him speak one time and he gave an illustration about how God loves you and wants to bless you. It's about you. He said, you should expect when you turn into a shopping mall that God's going to give you a parking place near the door. I don't expect that. That was an interesting sort of illustration. Why? Because I ought to get the price of privilege. Now, I noticed when I saw a picture of his building and it's uh, tens of thousands of people are there. All the parking places weren't by the door. I guess they were for the disobedient. (laughs) And I noticed he had handicapped spaces. I guess they were for the visitors because surely all the members would have been healed. Furthermore, I would have thought, by the way, I'm not running down healing or whatever. God does heal, but not carte blanche. It's according to the will of God, even as you see in Acts Why wouldn't it be right as a Christian to take the parking place at the end of the parking lot so somebody else could be near the door? Wouldn't that be more Christian? No, some of you went to the mall and uh, you say, no, actually, I don't think it's a big spiritual issue. I park in the closest one. But you get my point. Wouldn't it be better to be focusing on how other people could be helped instead of what you're going to get? We're myoptic. Jesus, bless me today. Jesus, take care of me today. Write prayers as long as they don't stop there. The inward view of the apostles. 
Jesus corrected them with an outward view. It's not for you to know when the kingdom's coming. Instead, you're going to receive power and be my witnesses. It may take a while, he's implying. In the meantime, you've got something to do. Now, the text says you will receive power. You will receive power. Clearly, you're supposed to be dependent on the Holy Spirit and his leadership in your life. And if you're going to be successful in your personal walk with God, your overcoming habits and sins and other things and relationships, you're going to have to have the Holy Spirit free in your life because he is the one who conquers the flesh for us. Read Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and following. That's a very strong work of the Holy Spirit. He makes us look like Christians, usually over time. But he does more. He does more. He leads us into significance. He leads us into serving the king. The Spirit will come and you will receive the Spirit. Now, I was reading this because it is a future tense. It is not a command, although many think it has command-like implications. You will receive the Holy Spirit. Not, you know, you ought to receive the Holy Spirit. No, you'll receive him. Well, I really would like to be powered, but I'd like to have the Holy Spirit for this or that. No, you've got him. Should I be filled with the, the Holy Spirit is coming. You will receive him. And according to Romans chapter 8, verse 9 and other texts, when you become a Christian, the Spirit is there. And that's what Jesus is saying. When you become a Christian, you have the Spirit. It is sent and you will receive it. Him, the Spirit. Not maybe, not should I, wish I, could I. He's there. And the power that is discussed here, the Greek word is dunamis, and it means a latent, inward, or ready power, ready to explode. Not, not exploding already, but inside, ready to do something. Therefore, you have the Holy Spirit there, and when needed in your life, the power is ready to be there for you. And it's resident within you because the Holy Spirit is there. You will receive power, and you'll be my witnesses. Therefore, you're empowered, dependent on the Holy Spirit, and representatives of Jesus. You will be. Once again, we might say, yeah, I really ought to be a witness. That's not what he said. He said, you'll be my witnesses. Well, if I were just better, then maybe I could be a witness. No, you are a witness. You are witnesses. Sometimes that's problematic. I like the man who said, one of the greatest evidences of Christianity is that it has survived the church. <laughs> I agree with that. Sometimes we don't live like we ought to. You're still a witness. 
If you claim Christ, if you come to a church, you are my representatives. Jesus, knowing he lived with one personality for one period of time, in time and space, left it and left it to people. And he said, you are, you will be my witnesses. Now, as the Holy Spirit led them, they went from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth because the Holy Spirit nudged them that way to represent Christ. I have an obvious question, though. How do you represent him? If others looked at you, would they say, boy, a Christian? That person's different. Most of the time, we don't know anybody well enough, so witnessing by your life and not your words is pretty futile, and it's contrary to Scripture. You have to speak, which is where the Holy Spirit's power is there, to enable you to say the right thing at the right time, complemented by a life that ought to be what it ought to be. You get my point, though. When you are following Christ, and he's the Lord... You do have the Holy Spirit and his power is available even if you're afraid to witness. And you will be, you are representatives of Christ. By the way, the two go together. You will receive the Spirit and be my witnesses. And let me say it in a way I hope you'll get it because I don't have a lot of time to explain it. When Jesus is central... When Jesus is the topic of conversation, the Holy Spirit is powerful. Follow that? When Jesus is the topic of conversation, the Holy Spirit is powerful. Conversely, let me say it in a theological way, if the Holy Spirit is the conversation topic, Jesus is not likely to be so pronounced. Now, I'm not opposed to talking about the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit's task, according to Jesus' words in John, is to bear witness to Jesus. And the Holy Spirit seems fulfilled, if we can use sort of human language, when people are talking about Jesus and how wonderful and great he is as the Lord of the earth. And so I have two simple points. You will have a global perspective when you understand who Jesus is, the ruling, the risen Lord, the ruling King, the requisite requirement for the Spirit. And you'll have a global perspective when you know who you are, responsible and able to bear witness to Jesus. You don't have to go overseas. You don't have to be anywhere where God wants you to be, but you have to be ready Decades ago now, I received a call in my office. The woman said, are you the president of this college? And I said, yes, because I was. (laughs) Oh, I never get to talk to the president. And I found out why. (sighs) She was a motivational speaker. (laughs) And her first word was, oh, well, be that as it may. Is your college significant? Wow, saying that to a president? I said, of course, yes. And she said, how? And I had never thought about that before. 
really interesting to be caught in a discussion like that. And I said, you know, ma'am, there are problems in our world. We have political problems. We have economic problems. We have racial problems. We have relationship problems. There are problems and failures everywhere in our world. And many institutions get to give you information that help to solve the problem. And I'm for them. But we focus on where you can really solve the problem. She said, how so? And I said, well, it's pretty simple. If people were aware of the kingdom of God and its global impact superior to our earthly kingdoms, we wouldn't have political problems. If we simply sought the kingdom first and were good stewards of our finances, we wouldn't have economic problems. If we loved our neighbors as ourselves and as the Good Samaritan tells us, and Jesus mentioned all of these things, we wouldn't have racial problems. And if we would just follow what Jesus said about marriage and how the Bible embellishes that, we wouldn't have relational problems. She was quiet. I thought I had lost her. A triumph because I didn't want to get involved with how she could help our school define ourselves. I waited probably 30 seconds. She hadn't hung up. And I heard sniffing, a little bit of crying. She said, you know, I know exactly what you mean. She said, my husband and I are successful. We have a great house. Our kids are grown and they have a wonderful, wonderful job, self-supporting, contributing to society. We just bought a house on the lake. We added a brand new car. Everything's going great. And then last week he said, I want a divorce. She said, my world caved in. She was crying. I said, ma'am, Have you ever met Jesus Christ personally? She said, I think so. So for another 30 minutes, I got to tell her how to accept Christ. I could tell her about the kingdom of God becoming personal in her life. And she said, where can I find out more? And I told her a church in Virginia that I thought she could go to. She said, oh, thank you, thank you. And we hung up. I don't know her name. I don't know anything about her. What I know is this. In a routine, sometimes nuisance call, somebody asked a question. And at that moment, the power latent within took its force and gave me an answer. And it wasn't what she sought, but it was what she needed. Ready. If you know who Jesus is, you want to tell the story. And our world needs that story. It's the only answer to our problems. And if you know who you are, you'll say, Lord, I'm unworthy. I am a witness. I want to be a good one. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we're so grateful for the word of God, which records history. And these are the last words of Jesus, giving us a commission.
He had already commanded to go into all the world, and now he was telling us what we should know and how we should do it. Lord, our world needs the gospel. We need to explain the kingdom of God. We need to affirm the risen Lord no matter what happens. Give us confidence and help us to walk with the Holy Spirit so we're prepared. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.